back to Behind the Screens. I'm Matthew Liebman from Movio. And I'm Simon Burton from Numero. Nice to have you back, mate. How was your week off? Yeah, tremendous, Matt. Thanks for asking. I headed down to the beach for a week with the family. Uh, lots of swimming and snorkeling, trading my fabric mask for my plastic snorkel mask and teaching teaching the kids how to snorkel. Uh, thankfully, didn't run into any, any man-eating sharks. It was, it was a fun experience. And glad to be back. A couple of weeks off CinemaCon heading out to, to Vegas. Yeah, is it true that you, um, that you used your Speedos as your face mask when you're on the beach? That was just between you and me, Matthew. That wasn't meant to be shared on the on the podcast, mate. Um, but yes, it wasn't it wasn't an, an adequate <laughs> adequate mask. <laughs> yeah, but these days, you know, slightly larger than my face, so I did have to sort of tie them up pretty tightly behind my ears. Um, enough about my my swimming antics, though. What have we got uh, in store this week? Joining us on the show today is Mark Malinowski. He's the VP of Global Marketing for National Amusements, and he's going to discuss global marketing trends from the US, the UK, and Latin America. He's going to go into loyalty and subscriptions, their experience with video on demand, as well as guest experience generally. But as always, Simon, why don't you kick us off with the numbers first? Certainly. The Suicide Squad opened in a number of international markets and domestically this past weekend, the third instalment of the Suicide Squad franchise. Domestically, it grossed $26.5 million US dollars. Uh, and at the international markets, it was screening an additional $35 million US dollars to bring the international QM to a total of $72 million now was the biggest R-rated release thus far of the pandemic, uh, a couple of million dollars ahead of the Mortal Kombat release from a few months ago. Um, In second place, we had Jungle Cruise, which dropped 55% to a weekend domestic total of $15.7 million. I guess it's fair to say that that result for the Suicide Squad domestically was slightly off some of the industry expectations, which were hoping for a $30 million plus start. A number of reasons probably led to this. I guess first and foremost, its availability uh, free of charge to approximately 47 million HBO Max subscribers uh, has an impact. If we were to look a bit more closely into those HBO Max subscribers, using the numbers at the end of June, HBO Max had approximately 12 million direct subscribers in the USA Mm -hmm. with an additional 32 million who got access to HBO Max as part of their standard HBO subscription. The one thing to note, though, is that AT&T doesn't report on how many of these 32 million standard HBO subscribers actually use the HBO Max format. Uh, Looking at some results from Samba TV, Earlier today, we can see that that their numbers were that the Suicide Squad was viewed in approximately 2.8 million US households over the weekend on HBO Max. And in comparison with Mortal Kombat, which drew 3.8 million US households, so about a million households less than Mortal Kombat, um, but a slightly higher box office in theatres a few months down the track from that Mortal Kombat release. Any opinions on, on that, Matthew? Yeah, look, I think it is worth distinguishing the HBO Max model and the Disney Plus model, uh, which is in place for Mulan and Black Widow and most recently Jungle Cruise. You know, Disney Plus charges around $30 US to access their movies via Pivot, and that makes it a really specific and discreet purchase decision. And also how Disney Plus is able to attribute Pivot revenue directly to the film. And then, of course, HBO Max costs more per month than Disney Plus does, but these simultaneous releases on that platform are included. And so with the payment in the past, the barrier to accessing a movie at home on HBO Max 
is much lower, but at the same time, no one can definitively tell whether it drove those HBO Max subscriptions or not. So really two different models that are happening here. And I think it is important to consider that the HBO Max model is pretty frictionless if you choose to watch it on the couch. You're not pulling out a credit card. You're not, you're not charging 30 extra dollars to watch it. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And I think also worth noting that unlike Disney, Warners can't comment on revenue and is yet to share any of the HBO Max viewership numbers. Uh, but back mm. to the theatres, what did the, the audience look like for The Suicide Squad this past weekend? Uh, looking at the movies with the greatest overlap of audiences for the opening weekend, uh, no surprises, Birds of Prey had the greatest, uh, as did other DC titles like Joker and Shazam. Um, Shazam's a bit surprising, I guess, because it played quite young as far as DC titles go. There are also recent titles. So we're seeing people come back to the cinema a lot with Snake Eyes, Black Widow, Green Knight, particularly with um, younger males. Uh, and then other comic book films like Avengers. Now, when I was talking to Jeremy from The Wrap last week, we were both surprised that Deadpool 2 didn't make the biggest titles in terms of audience overlap uh, as we went through the pre-release week. But it did crack the top eight this um, past weekend as the trade came through. One of the other things to call out, of course, when we're talking about the drivers of uh, different audiences for the first film versus the second, is that the first was PG-13 and the second was R-rated in the US, which means that you needed a parent or guardian to come along if you were under 17 years. And that did very much influence the opening weekend mix compared to the first Suicide Squad. So when you look at those underage 17 or under for the first title, that was about 25% of the mix. It was only 17% for the Suicide Squad this last weekend. And in fact, there were as many people age 55 plus as there were under 17 for the Suicide Squad at that 17% mark, uh, significantly higher than what you would have thought for the 55 pluses if you were going off the first film. Um, the other thing is I would have guessed that the 18 to 24 would have outperformed. Uh, when you're talking audience share, of course, it's all got a net off at 100%. But the 18 to 24 year was down four percentage points over the first film. First film, 20% of the audience was aged 18 to 24. This time it was only 16. It was a little bit more male skewed the second time around, uh, which often goes in place with R-rated titles. And I know we don't often talk ethnicity because it's uniquely American, but the composition was about six percentage points more Caucasian than the first instalment. And I can't help but wonder if the absence of Will Smith had something to do with, with that audience mix also. Yeah. Uh, now let's move on to this week's interview. Our guest today is Mark Malinowski. He's been the Vice President of Global Marketing at National Amusements for almost five years, where he oversees brand and marketing initiatives across the United States, Brazil, Argentina, and the UK. And he does so for the company's Showcase, Multiplex, Superlux, and Cinema Deluxe brands. Prior to joining NAI, Mark spent the majority of his career in senior roles for leading marketing, communications, and creative agencies, such as Embooth, Cone Communications, Bratskier and & Company, and Ketchum. But after a career in agency world, Mark's move to national amusements wasn't a departure so much as a homecoming, as he described in his, his article, going to the movies saved me, now it's time to save the movies. The cinema was not only a safe haven for Mark as he grew up, but also a place to bond with his dad. And many of these experiences occurred in NAI's showcase cinemas, which he now helps to run. Mark, welcome. Thank you so much for sparing some time to talk to me today. Thank you, Matthew. Thank it's you great. for that introduction. <laughs> it's great to see yeah. you. 
Hey, look, the last time you and I were supposed to catch up in person was a little over 15 months ago in Boston. We even had the Red Sox tickets ready. And so much has happened since then, especially to our industry. So in the face of all that, what gives you confidence in Cinema Exhibition's future? What gives me confidence? I, I think what gives me confidence is, is what you described. I think going to the movies is a part of our life where we are creating memories. Mm. And, you know, I, I think back about seeing Jaws with my dad at Showcase Cinema, White City, you know, in, mm. in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I remember that moment. I remember that movie. I remember being with my dad. And honestly, you know, I cannot remember what I watched on streaming last week. Um, so I, I, I think we need that, you know, as a, as a society, as a culture, we, you know, we need those special moments and we need those special things to do to gather and come together. And I think movie going does that. And I think that's why it's here to stay for, for a very long time. You know, when you um, think about attracting audiences, uh, as the world might be different, waking up from the pandemic as technology evolves and, you know, even where you can see movie changes, um, how how do you think you might, as an exhibitor, need to respond to that? You know, once we, you know, we have the film that they want to see, we have to make sure that, that the experience from the beginning of just purchasing their tickets or our website to getting to the theater, seeing the movie, that it's, you know, it's a flawless, frictionless experience where the customer, you know, is sort of almost in a spell and we don't break mm -hmm. it. We just reinforce it and reinforce it and, you know, present the movie in a perfect way and follow up with that customer, you know, and understand sort of what their experience was like and then bring them back again through uh, communication. So I, I think it's really that full circle. So that's the challenge. But I think with COVID, you know, what's been good about this situation is it's given us the time to, to improve upon what we've been doing. We're leaning into technology more than ever before. We're really looking at customer service. We're looking at our offerings, everything from group sales to, you know, our gift card program to, you know, our subscription program, our loyalty programs, which are, you know, more important than ever. So we're looking mm. at everything and, and looking at how do we raise the bar to make it worthwhile for that customer to leave their sofa and get in their car and drive to a movie cinema to have an, you know, an exceptional time with us. Yeah. So that, that's what we have to do. And that's what we're going to continue to do. And it, it's going to be a process that never really ends. I love the way and, you talk about the spell. Um, you know, we once in a prior role commissioned some customer journey mapping and the planning of going to the cinema was called anticipation. It was all about excitement. And when you sit in the seat was immersion and that's being enveloped by the story. But in between that, a lot of customers, a lot of moviegoers felt administration. And there's probably not a worse word between uh, anticipation and immersion than administration. And you talking about a spell and floating people through that is, is just a terrific headspace for it all. I, I, I think that's really what it is. You know, I mean, when you think about the world that we're living in now, and this affects all of our markets, you know, it, it's happening everywhere. There's a lot of stress. There's, a, mm -hmm. I mean, that's an understatement. There's just so much happening. And even beyond COVID, that when they walk into one of our cinemas, you know, it really is, should be a respite yeah. in a place where they can go and they can experience something that's in the moment, puts them in the moment, takes them out of social media and everything mm -hmm. else that's going around them and put them in a, in a place where they can be in the moment and share that experience with the people that they care most about.
You know, yeah. that, that's what we do. So as you talk about people coming back to the theaters, are you seeing a difference in the mix or some moviegoers as a, as a, a segment coming back quicker than others, um, both, both in the U.S., but also the other territories you look at? You know, it's interesting. I, I I mean, we're seeing a cross section, but the news is different every day. So, for example, in the UK, you know, it, it does seem like we're coming out of the the peak, you know, and, and sort of through the other side of, of, you know, the variant. So, you know, we're, we're looking at a really big weekend this weekend with Suicide Squad. That's obviously a more adult film. But, you know, in terms of family film, Paw Patrol, uh, you know, we mm-hmm. just put tickets on sale. They're going well, you know, so we're, we're, we're seeing that family customer purchasing those tickets. But in the U.S., you know, it is tricky. Paramount just put Clifford, yeah. the big red dog, on hold, you know, in terms of release. So there is still some of that pivoting that has to happen. But with the U.S. looking at our market share for the last, I'd say, you know, month and a half, Showcase has been punching above our weight. We've been ranking between seven, number seven, number eight nationally. Uh, for each of those weekends. And, you know, there's been a lot of different films sort of released, you know, Snake Eyes and Old Mm -hmm. and obviously, you know, Black Widow and, you know, Fast Nine. So a lot Mm -hmm. of different genres, a lot of different audiences coming in to see us. I do see, though, what the trend is for us, at least, is we're offering special uh, incentives almost for every movie. And Mm -hmm. for the most part, each of the studios are co-marketing with us. So for example, with our Star Pass loyalty program, Mm -hmm. we're offering uh, a $2 extra incentive for a purchase of a particular ticket. Um, Pretty much every studio is doing it now with every movie. So we're seeing the difference in the lift, you know, in the first weekends um, for all of them. Um, Done a couple of studios that have sort of not done it yet. And we've Mm -hmm. actually just talked to them about that. And we've seen the difference. Yeah, that's great. And you've touched on loyalty a couple of times, but could you elaborate on that and maybe also include your subscription program? What role did both of those play in a world of shorter windows and simultaneous releases and everything else you've touched on that's happening in the world? Yeah, I mean, loyalty is vital. You know, Mm -hmm. it was important before the pandemic. It's more more important than ever now. We made the decision early on at the very beginning of the pandemic to communicate to our, our most loyal customers every single day. And, you know, that's through email. Um, that was also through social channels, but mm-hmm. we, we wanted to ensure them we were there for them, even during this difficult time where we weren't even sure what was happening with our industry and, you know, really with the world. So we kept the communication channels open. That was a key thing because I, you know, in all of our markets, and, and then as we were encountering uh, news and governance from each of our markets, we shared that news with our customer base and with our loyalty members. So, and that includes subscribe. One thing with subscribe mm-hmm. that's different, you know, obviously than our, our Star Pass loyalty program is the fact that, you know, it's a paid membership. Mm-hmm. So we put that on pause for our folks and we communicated that we were doing that and we communicated that we would be coming back and we gave them a lot of time to come back at, you know, in, in a lot of breathing room. Mm. So we didn't force it. And that was key. We now have, you know, the majority of our, our base back, uh, which is fantastic. So <laughs> I think that that's the key. You've got your loyal base. They love movies. We're giving them reasons to come back to us to see movies with us. That's great. And at the same time, especially through the pandemic, you were, uh, as a company, really open-minded and one of the first and earliest exhibitors into the VOD space with Showcase Now. Can you talk a little bit about the role it plays? 
Yeah, Showcase Now is interesting. I mean, it's we have a, a sister site in the UK, Showcase at Home, uh, mm-hmm. which is similar. And it, it really is built as part of our overall ecosystem, you know, for content and, and seeing movies with us, you know, in a theater. But then if they want to watch a film through streaming in the home environment or on any device, we make that available to them. One of the things that we did differently, though, with it for us is we didn't think we were ever going to go head to head, the big PVOD mm-hmm. uh, offerings out there. Uh, what we saw as an opening for us is to build on our event cinema programming and our specialty programming. And that's, you know, everything from concert films to uh, classic films. Mm-hmm to museum tours, to documentaries, you know, those things do well, some better, better than others, Mm -hmm. but in general do well with our, with our theater audiences, our met audiences in in the U S. So we, and we know those spaces, those audience spaces. So we've built programming and offerings through VOD, through streaming that are rooted in that. So we have a, you know, I have a core mission and we have a core content strategy Mm -hmm that we are really trying to stay true to and focused on. Now, if we have a quiet place to opening um, and Paramount wants to work with us on, you know, sort of streaming program and, you know, a sort of offering where if you see quiet place two, you can see quiet place one on Mm -hmm. showcase now for, you know, or reduced price, whatever it is, we're doing those things too, making sense with what's being played theatrically and what's programmed theatrically. But, you know, it does stand on its own as well. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of the unique films uh, have been political documentaries um, mm-hmm. that have really done extraordinarily well. We even have a program now that we're working with the Boston Globe with okay. their documentary program, cross-promoting with them. So it's it's definitely finding its audience as of now, but it's building and getting stronger. And it seems the way you describe that, that you know, it, it just calls out that people go to different places for different experiences. They come to you for that big screen experience, but they want those more intimate stories than they find them at home a little bit. One of the other things that I, has come out of the last 18 months, of course, is private hires, uh, private theatre rentals. And I've seen that have a big presence in your circuit as well. Can you elaborate on the role it played in the past 18 months and where you see it going forward as, as a more traditional yep. operating environment returns? Yeah, private hires, private screenings are something that took us by storm this year, really at the beginning of the year, going through all the way to the summer. It's been something that the customer told us they wanted. We quickly created the offering. I mean, we had group sales prior to this and, you know, it was an offshoot of this, but the pricing was different and it was just sort of a different way into it. It's been insightful. We've learned a lot through it and been a cornerstone for this year for us. We believe it's not a product that's going to go away. We do need to make it work though within our first run schedule. So the way we are looking at it is, uh, you know, and what we did earlier this year was bring back a lot of repertory product because we didn't have that many first run films going through us for release. So we brought back that programming and people came and they saw Jurassic Park and the big screen again and, 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 you know, enjoyed it. But now that we are back into and getting closer and closer to the, sort of a, the, the cadence of the first run uh, releases prior to COVID, we, we have to schedule private screenings in a way where it is during the week 
mm-hmm. we, we, we try to focus it. And then on the weekends, it's during our off peak time. So probably in the morning, um, but it is also first run focused as well. So working with the studios to co-promote those. So, you know, I just got off of one of these calls with a studio talking about movies that are being released in the next couple of months. And there's definitely a strategy now for private screenings for films going forward with first run films. So it, the pricing needs to be right. It needs to be scheduled correctly so that it flows through all of our programming, you know, and so again, the weekday, early morning, weekend focus is probably where we're going to be going with it. That's amazing. I guess there's opportunity even out of the more darkest of, of circumstances. And this seems to be well, a big one. Well, and to that point, you know, um, prior to COVID, we were always thinking about how do we how do we boost weekday movie going? You know, we do have a lot of great programs. You know, we have our Senior Wednesdays. Mm-hmm. We have our Bargain Tuesdays. Um, we, we continue to think about it. And it's interesting that this private screening audience is finding the weekdays now. So that's great. And then also early morning weekends was always a, a, you mm-hmm. know, a bit of an off peak as well. So how do, how do we boost that? So, um, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting how it's all sort of netting out. It's, it's yeah. all making sense. So you operate in the U.S., the U.K., Argentina and Brazil. So three different languages. Some could argue four different languages. Right. How do you see the role of, of local content versus Hollywood content in the non-U.S. markets in the recent past, but also going forward? Yeah, I mean, particularly in Latin America, mm. uh, it has been key for us. You know, one of our locations in uh, Argentina, Cordoba, we work with a local filmmaker in the community. It was one of the, it was the first film, I think we, when we reopened two to three months ago mm-hmm. that we premiered there. And the community really got behind the film and uh, the filmmakers and we sort of were uh lockstep with them and mm-hmm. so we had the premiere there the, the the cast came the filmmakers were obviously there and it was really one of our first mm-hmm. openings and so in that that continues so working to work with local argentine filmmakers and premieres and supporting them uh with our theaters and you know and to, to a degree it's that way in brazil argentina i think really stands out though um yeah. in terms of working with the filmmakers We'll continue to do that. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Look, many of us spent the lockdown making really dodgy sourdough, but in 2020, you look like you took up painting and your landscapes and seascapes are really beautiful. And since then, your paintings have been displayed in galleries and art shows. And from what I gather, you've sold 15 times as many paintings in your lifetime as Van Gogh did in his. Um, <laughs> what's painting represented for you through this last year or so? And um, what's it what's it given you? Oh, thanks for saying that. Um, I, painting has been, uh, we're in a creative business, you know, mm-hmm. movie going is a creative business and, you know, marketing is a, is a creative business. And, but I, I have always loved to draw, but during the beginning of the pandemic, it was stressful. So, and we were on a lot of zoom calls and I needed to find something beyond Peloton to do. So <laughs> to sort of just put myself in, you know, I couldn't go to the cinema. I couldn't mm-hmm. see movies uh, at that point. So uh, what what could I do? So I, I started to experiment with oil painting. And then I started to um, work with a local artist here uh, weekly. Mm-hmm. And a year later, yes, I'm selling them. I'm in, in two galleries and uh, it's been amazing. And, you know, what's interesting is it sort of all comes full circle. We are opening a new theater in Hanover, Massachusetts next year. Um, we're going to work with the local, which is not far from where I live now in the South Shore of Boston. So we're working with an artist group here to help us with our opening. Um, we're going to do a fun art of the movies, you know, uh, exhibit where we're going to work with the local high school students to challenge them to create art that's inspired by certain movies, scenes from certain movies that they love. Awesome. We're going to exhibit it. 
we're going to have a benefit, we're going to have a screening. So it, it all comes full circle. That's great. Mark, you, you're really one of the industry's gentlemen. What I love about this chat here is that, you know, a lot of exhibitors lean on the film and the facilities, and you've talked about the experience and the magic and the interpersonal part of, of cinema going. And for me, that's the foundation that's going to see it going forward. So look, thank you for sharing your insights and experience, and I cannot wait to catch up with you in person as soon as possible. Thank you. Me too. Once again, Matt, fantastic interview. Uh, I'm sure I'll get a chance to interview somebody at some point in this podcast. I think we're down about six, six nothing at the moment. So I, I certainly owe you a couple. Uh, next week, we'll analyze the box office and audiences for the upcoming titles Free Guy, Respect, and Don't Breathe Too. Uh, I'd like to thank Mark again for joining us today and for all of you for listening in. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced and edited by Tiana Perez and Grace Furness. Additional insights from Christine Rizzolo and Ryan Preventure.